So Genesis 18 and 19 glimpses the powerful work of intercessory prayer. So what is intercession? I, I spoke about this a little bit in prayer. It's to stand in someone's place. To intercede is to stand in someone's place. Now the high priest would intercede for Israel and he stood as one with the people of Israel praying and offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. But he also stood before the people as a representative of God, blessing, forgiving, and ministering the word of God to the people. Jesus, as our great high priest, did the same, but in greater measure. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus took our place, stood with us to represent us on the cross before God. But he also stood before mankind as God to show us the compassion, the love, the work, the, the personal quality of God. God is calling us to be intercessors. We are to stand in the stead of the lost, the compromised, the innocent, the corrupted, those close to judgment, and to seek the Lord on their behalf. In other words, we're to have conversations with God about the lost. We are not to seek the damnation of this world, but the salvation of this world. Recently, um, and I've told my friends about it, some are wondering if I'm a heretic, and others are like, okay, interesting, let me think about that. But it all started when we did a study on Daniel, you know, so many years ago. And Daniel 9, Daniel's prayer really disturbed me. Do you want to know why? Because he prayed R. And, you know, speaking of the sins of Israel, and he associated himself with Israel. And I want to say, no, Daniel, you're righteous. It's us versus them. It's me versus that, those evil people over there. I always want to do that. I always want to disassociate myself. I always want to separate myself. But we don't see that with Jesus, do we? We don't see the separation. We see our Jesus going up to the tax collector and saying, come down from that tree. I want to have lunch at your house. We see a meeting with publicans and sinners. We see him associating, not drawing apart, but associating. And Daniel, when he's praying, he prays this prayer that associates, puts himself as one with the people of Israel. He takes culpability for the sins of Israel when he intercedes. In Ezra 9, verses 5 through 9, Ezra does the same thing. He hears that the people, the exiles, having come back, are intermarrying with uh, the Moabites and uh, the people of the land, and they're turning to paganism. 
And he prays this prayer as if he was a pagan, as if he had intermarried, as if he was on the verge of turning to idolatry. Intercession puts us with the other sinners by association, by humility. We do not pray from a superior standpoint. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and he comes in and he goes, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I'm not like that man in the corner. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not an idolater. I'm not greedy for money. I'm so good. And then he tells us about the publican who beats his chest and just says, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus tells us that the publican went away justified, but not the Pharisee. This was put to the test uh, because, you know, I'm doing the Lord's Prayer. And for some strange reason, when I come to Matthew chapter 6 or the Lord's Prayer in Luke, I always want to personalize it in that I want to say, my Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And every time I've started to go, my father, I feel the Holy Spirit quicken me and say, read it again. Our father, our father. I believe if we would understand the term our father, we would treat each other so differently. Our father. And I feel that, thank you. What is the sound of one hand clapping? That's it. I feel that if our, even our songs reflect our Western individualism, we have disassociated ourselves from each other. So we sing, I, I'm desperate for you. I don't know about these others, but I, we're kind of like Peter. I don't know about these others, but I know I would die for you. But I don't know about these people. Well, I wouldn't press them either, God. You know, we put ourselves kind of as judge over people instead of one with the people. Intercession puts us all on level ground. So I felt God put it on my heart to pray in a certain way, and I call it incarnational prayer. I'm not saying I'm Jesus. <laughs> Incarnation means to put yourself in the shoes of someone else. So when Jesus, when we call him God incarnate, we're saying he's God in human sandals. He's God come down living like one of us. Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary, a Western missionary, an Englishman, who went to China, he dressed like the Chinese, lived like the Chinese, ate what the Chinese ate, and then began to minister to the Chinese as one of them not superior, but as one of them. There's a book called um, Patricia St. John Tells Her Story. And Patricia St. John is uh, one of my um, heroes in the faith. But she also wrote a book on her father, who was a missionary. But she talked about how her father was a banker in England. And he wanted to minister at the local chapter of Salvation Army. So he went there at lunchtime in his banker's suit, and none of the uh, men, the derelicts, would listen to him. They just ignored him. And so he got this idea, 
So he took his month's vacation and he went to the thrift store and he bought different clothes, the clothes that were more like what the men at the Salvation Army wore. And then he went and he lived among them. He took a bed there and for his vacation, he stayed at the Salvation Army barracks and ate their food and he did this for three weeks. And at the end of three weeks, he opened his Bible and he began to speak to them and all of the men were riveted. They listened because they knew that he understood their plight. He had lived as one of them. That's incarnation. That's incarnation. Robert McQuilkin, who was also a missionary, said that the most successful missionaries are incarnate. They're the ones who live as and like the people they minister to. Now, I remember this time reading Daniel's prayer, being disturbed by it. And the Lord spoke to me and said, I want you to pray for your enemies as if you were them. I said, what? I want you to pray as if you were your enemy. I want you to pray on their stead as if you were them. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, you can't really pray, oh, curse me, <laughs> drive me out. <laughs> now when you're associating, you have to go like, mercy, <laughs> lots of mercy. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, and we call it the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So as I begin to pray for others, as if I was them, I felt dirty and ashamed. It was, it was weird. I didn't want to take on those sins. I didn't want to even ask forgiveness for those sins. I, because one, I didn't want God to let those people off the hook. But when it was me, I wanted off the hook. Isn't it interesting? Like we can pray grace for ourselves, but it's hard to pray grace for others sometimes. But I, I began to pray this way. And as I felt this, this dirtiness with the association, I felt the Holy Spirit quick in my heart. This is what I felt on the cross. When I bore your sin, Jesus who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Interestingly enough, as I started praying for a certain person, I remember I was, um, I was at the uh, Talbert Nature Center and I was praying for this person and I prayed for quite a few people. <laughs> Obviously, I've got a lot of people I don't like. Um, I was praying for another person who's hurt me, wronged me. And as I was praying for this person, this man jumped out of the bushes on his bike and he began to circle me. And he began to go, what's your name? What are you doing? And I was just like, whoa, I hit a nerve in hell. <laughs> and I began to pray even with more fervency. Oh God, this person needs, you know, we need deliverance. We need deliverance from evil. We need deliverance from the power that is holding us. Loose us, loose us, God from the power of the enemy, make Satan have to break his grasp. 
I began to pray more fervently for him, declaring the sins and asking for forgiveness. Intercession is more than just praying for someone. It is about deep conversation with God. It is about receiving from God and giving back to God. It is about laying our feelings bare and praying man's heart before God and receiving God's heart for men in its stead. In Ezekiel 33, 11, God says that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's will is that the wicked would turn from his way and turn to righteousness. So in Abraham, we see the great activity of intercession. And I've got seven points to intercession. Don't be afraid. I've got to get back to class. You've got to have lunch. But one, we see the preparation of intercession. Two, the perception that intercession brings. Three, the productivity of intercession. Four, the process. Five, the participation. And don't worry, we'll go over these point by point. Six, the prevailing power. And seven, the peace. So the preparation of intercession, Genesis 18, 1 through 8. Abraham is sitting at the doorway of his tent when three figures draw near in the distance. And somehow he recognizes the divine. Perhaps it's the way they walked. Or was it that he knew God so well from earlier experiences and appearances that he recognized him? As Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep know my voice. Did he hear the voice of the Lord and he knew was it the stirring in his heart, like we read in Luke chapter 24, that burning heart when he saw or heard the Lord? But I love this. Abraham, at 90-something, went running toward the Lord. What did that look like? To see a 90-year-old man running. But he was so anxious, so excited by the divine company that he forgot his age that he forgot his aches and pains, that he forgot his limitations, and he began to run. Now, it's interesting because Abraham had to run towards these men and bring them in. Intercession is running after Jesus and bringing him into conversation. There's preparation. I think of Mark 6:48. Mark says that when Jesus was walking on the water, it almost seemed like he would pass the disciples in the boat by, but they called out to him. And that's when he turned and came toward them. In Luke 24:8, when Cleopas and the other disciple are walking with Jesus, Jesus acts like he's going to go further on. But they implore him, no, please, come dine with us. There is the essentiality in preparation to invite Jesus in. You see, we can see the activity of the Lord. We can hear the word of the Lord. But there comes this special place of inviting the Lord in. In Revelation 3.16, we read, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. 
You see, intercession is bringing Jesus in. Bringing Jesus into the situation, bringing Jesus into the conversation, bringing Jesus into the thoughts in our mind. You know, our thoughts in our mind can spiral so south, can't they? So quickly, unless we bring Jesus in. So part of the preparation is bringing Jesus in. But Abraham is prepared to fellowship with the Lord. Right away, he goes to Sarah, Sarah make some of those delicious wheat cakes, take some of that flour, get working. He, he grabs a calf and he takes it to his servants and he says, roast this and bring it to us. Because in the Eastern culture, food, the sharing of a meal was a time of covenant, oneness, and friendship. Abraham spreads a banquet out before the divine company. And the banquet includes bread and milk and butter and meat. So we see that Abraham is not kosher. Just saying. Or kosher in what has come to be. I believe he is the original kosher. So we have to ask ourselves, are we excited to meet with the Lord? When it comes to a time of prayer, we're like, well, I guess I've got to pray. Have you ever been with people like, well, we should pray? Well, you know, the Lord didn't work, so now I'm going to pray. Instead of running to meet the Lord, bringing our best to him, making our time of prayer a feast with the Lord. You see, intercession is not meant to be starvation, It is meant to be a feast. It is meant to be a fellowship. It is meant to be a conversation and a covenant time. Lord, we're in this together. Next, the perception that we receive through intercession. Genesis 18, 9 through 21. It is intercession where we realize that God thoroughly knows us. As we begin to pray for others, we realize that God knows our doubts, our inner thoughts, that he thoroughly sees us. We cannot hide behind tent walls and we cannot hide our thoughts from him. I love that Sarah thinks that she can hide behind the tent curtain and just listen to Jesus or God. I believe this is a Christology Um, an appearance of Jesus, the Messiah in the Old Testament. Because the Bible says no man has seen the Father at any time, but he that is the begotten of God. So they're seeing perhaps this meeting with Jesus. And Sarah tries to hide and just eavesdrop. And God reveals his plan for Abraham and Sarah. Sarah would have a child within a year. And Sarah laughs in her heart. Wouldn't you? (laughs) The idea of having a child at my age, in my old age, I think she's laughing at the whole concept, the whole idea. Um, It's not only ridiculous, but maybe she got a mental picture of what it would look like. Uh, Years ago, I, I, I was in Ensenada, and they did a Bible, let me see how I can say this, biblical woman fashion show. 
And so they had this woman come out in like this nude colored leotard with vines all over her, and she was Eve. She walked across the stage. Each woman took about five minutes. There, back, then around the stage, then off the stage, but she came back. And then there's Sarah. And I think they got the oldest woman in their fellowship. And I hope that was a pillow. Just saying, it, you know, it was so cute because she kept modeling her stomach, you know, like Vanna White with the, you know, the letters. She was like, modeling Isaac. I, I wonder if Sarah got just a mental picture, like what would that look like to see a, a pregnant 90-year-old? What would that look like? And she begins to laugh. And God calls her out. Why did Sarah laugh? And you know, Abraham's like, she laughed? I didn't hear anything. And Sarah's like, I didn't laugh, thinking that that was inside, not outside. But I love this because it becomes an inside joke between God, Sarah, and Abraham. When God says, name him laughter. Name him Isaac so you'll always remember the improbable, the impossible, but that God came through. Remember your thoughts about it. I love that God. He's aware of the absurdity of some of his work. He knows it. Sometimes he gives us a promise and you're like, really? Did I hear that right? And God's like, yeah, name it Isaac. It might seem absurd, but I'm going to do it. So God is reminding Abraham and Sarah of how improbable it was, reminding them of their reaction, sharing the inside story with them. It is also an intercession that God reveals his power, the perception of his power. Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? There are no impossibilities with God. Often, our intercession is for the salvation of someone who is seemingly so far from the Lord. But in Matthew 19, 26, talking about the salvation of men, Jesus says, with men, this is impossible. No man can save himself. It's absolutely impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In intercession, when we're praying for the lost, we're saying, all things are possible. I think it's last week, but I can't remember who I am or where I've been, that I said, who would have imagined that Paul the apostle will get saved? I don't think he was on anyone's most likely to be saved list. I think he was like on the least likely to be saved list. I used to have a least likely to be saved list. You know, like these we pray with confidence. These we pray for with like, like a Hail Mary. Like just throw that football up in the air, see if anyone catches it. Just maybe one of these lost people will catch it. And I remember one of the women, I mean, if she saw me, she, she made naughty gestures at me. She lived down the street from me. And I mean, this woman like hated me passionately because her daughter was saved in a good friend of mine. And this woman just hated me. Blame me for everything. I was worse than George Bush. I got blamed for everything. And I remember uh, going to the market. We had moved and I went to the market and there she was. And you know that like aisle that you're like, 
how do I turn around? I hope she didn't see me, but she turned, she sees me, and she goes, oh, and I thought, oh, she's had a stroke. <laughs> Poor thing. Or she thinks I'm somebody else. You know, what color is my hair today? I was just trying to remember, and she kept blowing kisses. And she said, I love you, I love you, I love you. And I was like, great. I need tomato sauce on another aisle. And I, I left. I saw her daughter about, I don't know, a month later. I said, you know what? This sounds really weird, but I was, you know, at the market. Your mother was there and she was blowing me kisses. Is she okay? And she said, um, she's more than okay. She was born again. And I said, oh no, I have to transfer her. She has to go to another list. I seriously was just like, you know, it was, you know, funny enough, you know, we have the term Hail Mary here, right? And it means to throw the football um, when you've got like 10 seconds left in the game and you really need a touchdown. And the quarterback just, he just throws it high and as far as he can and just prays that one of his team members catches it. So that's a term, Hail Mary. So we're in Ireland and my son Chara is preaching and teaching, and I'm just so proud of him. And then he says, you know, it's like throwing a Hail Mary. You should have seen those Irish people. Throwing a Hail Mary, who you do? What is it? It was so fun. I'm just looking at the quizzical looks, like, who would throw Mary, you know? <laughs> just an American. There is no condemnation, but honesty. I know you laughed. I'm not condemning you over the laughter. I know the absurdity. I'm laughing with you. Grace in the name of Isaac. It is in intercession that God reveals his power. There's nothing too hard. Matthew 19, 26. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then Hebrews 7, 25. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Don't you just love that word, uttermost? Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all who come to him. He's able to completely save every iota. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. It is in intercession, these times of fellowship and conversation, that we learn the true nature of God. We learn that he's not willing that any should perish. We realize that he's not quick to judgment and destruction. We realize that he does not afflict willingly. Lamentations 3.33. We learn that judgment is his last resort. Isaiah 28.21. We learn that he is slow to anger. Exodus 34. And abounding in loving kindness. God is absolutely righteous and would not destroy and does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Now on earth, living under this sun in this broken world, we see that the righteous often suffer alongside the wicked. But when God is judging, the wicked are judged and the righteous are spared. We see such mercy with God that even for the sake of 10 righteous, he would spare a wicked city. I think of 1 Corinthians 7, 14, where God says that 
the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the presence of a believing wife in a house. I mean, that's amazing that God is actually sparing the unbelieving husband. He's looking out. He's working extra time on that unbelieving husband because of that believing wife. But conversely, the believing husband, God is working extra time on that believing, on that unbelieving wife. It is through intercession that we learn the plans of God, the plans of God for ourselves, the plans of God for others, and the plans of God for the world. As we meet with God, God reveals to us what he is going to do. Abraham was told again that he would become a great and mighty nation, that nations would be blessed in him. Abraham was told again of the purpose of his call, that he was to set an example for his children. But Abraham was also informed about others, the evil in Sodom, God's plan to investigate and God's plan to judge. And he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And here is God's plan for the world. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. When did this revelation come? Where is the clarity of this revelation? It's in intercession. Thirdly, intercession brings predictivity to our fears, concerns, sorrows, and grief. Abraham isn't wringing his hands over the revelation of God. Instead, he talks to God about these plans. We can either stress, which is havoc on our body, and leads to doubt and depression, or trying to fix it to ourselves, which is often counterproductive and ruinous, or we can pray and sow spiritual seeds that will bring a great harvest. In Psalm 126, verse 5, it says, those who sow in tears will doubtless reap in joy, bringing their sheaves or the harvest of those tears, those seedling tears with them. If we take our grief, our burdens, our sorrows, our angst, our pain, our perplexity to God in prayer, we make it seeds. We bring productivity to deadness. We bring fertilizer to the seeds, and God will bring a harvest of joy. I was going through a particularly hard time when I happened on a sermon by Tim Keller, which I have listened to over 15 times. And I go back to it, and it's called Pray Your Fears. You can find it on YouTube. I highly recommend listening to it at least five times. It is so good. But he talks about bringing productivity to our fears. You know, we can make fears productive if we pray our fears. We can make sorrow productive if we pray our sorrow. If we bring it to God, we can make our burdens productive if we pray our burdens. We can transform them. They can become seeds for a harvest of joy if we pray them. And you know what's interesting? It's a harvest that keeps bearing fruit. It's a harvest that first that person gets saved. 
But then the other prayers start coming in and the other prayers start coming in the prayers. You don't, don't stop at praying just for their salvation. Intercede. You don't stand on the promise of God and say, and when, and when they are saved and when they are in the land, Lord, I want to get really even, make them a preacher. Make them an evangelist. Make them a missionary. You know, get even. Get even with that child for putting you through that. God can bring productivity to even our fear and our sorrow if we take it to God. Fourthly, intercession we process with God. Genesis 18, 22 through 23. Left alone with God, as the angelic men travel onto Sodom, Abraham begins negotiations with God. Now, God's not going, uh, stop it. Don't you ask me any questions. I think we have the wrong assumption that we can't ask God questions. And I've heard people like, never ask God why. I ask God why all the time. Why? Why? Now, like a wise parent, he doesn't always answer. But sometimes he does. Sometimes he takes me up and he gives me a heavenly perspective and says, Cheryl, this is why this is necessary, what you're going through. There is an answer. And I, I believe that when we read the Bible, we should come and ask, why? What? How? Those are good questions. If we expect the answer to come from God. Not from earth, but from God. Abraham is seeking through these negotiations to know what is God looking for. When the men go to Sodom, what will make the difference to God? What makes the difference? What amount of righteousness? How many do there need to be to make a difference? You know, how many men does it take to change a light bulb? How many men does it Change, does it take to spare a city? How many righteous men? That's where the joke first originated, you know? How many righteous in Sodom are needed to save a city? How many pastors are needed to change a light bulb? How many righteous people are needed to save a city? He starts at 50 and he ends at 10. Now, I think that Sodom was a city that Abraham had an investment in. Think about it. He had taken his trained servants at one point and he had saved this city. He had exerted energy and time and sacrificed his servants. He knew the king of Sodom. He had fought for the residents. He had restored the fortunes of the people living there. Abraham had seen these people in the best of circumstances as far as the men of Sodom were concerned. He saw them conquered, broken, desperate people. He saw them in the light of day. However, these people, once secure again and feeling safe, had turned back to deplorable behavior. But that behavior was only seen once the sun went down. A cursory look at Sodom during the day, you wouldn't see it. 
but what God saw. Abraham's conversation with God, again, begins with the proposition of 50 righteous, going from 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. It's a process. It's a process. As women, we tend to process as we are talking. I think that's why we have to talk so much and why we have more words than men. They kind of sometimes skip the process. They go A to Z. We go A, B, A, D, B, C, A. We are trying to understand ourselves. We are trying to make sense of our circumstances. We are trying to understand others. And we are trying to find out what our place and attitude are to be. This is why we have to talk. Um, I've told you this before, but I was recently on the phone with my oldest daughter. She called me up and she says, Mom, this is what I'm, in fact, this is what she said. Mom, do you have WhatsApp? I get a text. No, get it. I need to talk to you. So I download WhatsApp and she calls me. And, you know, actually we're looking at each other. And she says, Mom, this is the situation. Mom, you know, here are the promises of God. Mom. And I kept trying to get a word in edgewise. I really did. But she was doing all the talking. And by the end of the conversation, she said, Thank you, Mom, so much. You always help me. <laughs> and I realized that my daughter is a psalmist. You know, because that's what the Psalms are, aren't they? The psalmist is processing. He starts out with this huge dilemma. How long, oh Lord? What's going on? Will my enemy always have the upper hand? And by the end of the Psalm, he's like, uh-uh. God, you're on the throne. I know you're at work even in this. It's a process. But we need to process I think too many times people are telling you, skip the process. Don't skip the process. As women, we have to process. You have to process. You have to know the steps. You know, when your husband looks at you and he says, don't cry, and you're crying, does that help? Or do you say, oh, thank you. You spoke, and now happiness, automatic at your world. You know, I always tell Brian, will you let me do this? I'm in a process. I'm working through this. But we need to process. And intercession is a time for processing. But we're processing with God. Which, again, that's where the productivity is. As we process. Through this process, we come to understand and see ourselves, others, circumstances in the light of who God is. God's value system. That's what we see. It changes how we think. I love Psalm 73. It's one of the greatest examples of processing the dilemma, the circumstance with God. Asaph comes into this going, Lord, all I see is that the wicked are prospering and the righteous uh, seem to get nowhere in life. By the end, he's going, okay, I get it. I get it. I'm going to heaven. And there on, as Jonathan Edwards put it, a frozen plank over the fires of hell. Think about that one for a while. It'll make you happy. In intercession, we participate with God. Intercession puts us on God's team. 
As we know the plans of God, as we begin to see the justice, the mercy, the righteousness, the goodness of God, we then pray his will and not our own. Intercession, often we start with my will, my will. But as we process, God changes our heart and makes us a participant. So we're saying, all right, Lord, where do you want me to stand? What is my place in your will? You see, prayer, intercession, is not to get our will accomplished, but to bring us into the plans and purposes of God. And that's what happens in intercession. We learn to trust the goodwill of God. Because we are no longer ignorant of God's work. We are no longer outsiders on God's plan. We are no longer resisting God's plan. Rather, we find our placement in intercession, what we are to do, where we are to stand, and what attitude we are to have. Abraham, after this time of intercession, began to watch, began to look toward the area of Sodom. Intercession stops us from thwarting, hindering, working against the plans of God, and helps us to become actively involved in the accomplishment of God's will on earth. Next, intercession reveals to us the prevailing power of God, Genesis chapter 19. God knows how to deliver the righteous. This is something that Peter speaks about in his second epistle, Jude, in his short epistle, that God knows exactly what is necessary to deliver the righteous from a wicked society, wickedness, the quality itself, and judgment. God knows exactly how much pressure and what to reveal to Lot. I believe that Lot doesn't believe in the wickedness of the place he lives. I used to have this naivety when it came to evil. And I thought my mom was like on such a downer. Yeah, because she'd say, oh, they're wicked. They're so wicked. And I'd be like, oh, come on, mom, lighten up. Life is good. People are basically good. And she'd be like, Cheryl, people are basically evil. We'd even have fights. No, mom, they're good. Evil. Good. Evil. And she was, she, and before I go to school, she would always say, you're a lamb among wolves. I thought I was a lamb among lambs. But then mom began to pray and I began to see wolves in sheep's clothing. Lot doesn't believe in the wickedness of the place he lives. You know, if you don't recognize the wickedness of men, you're going to put yourself in vulnerable places. The angelic strangers prove the real personality and perversion of Lot's neighbors. If those men hadn't come to town, if Lot hadn't brought them into his house, would Lot know the aggressive, perverse nature of his neighbors? Would he see their obsession with wickedness or their pride or their unrepentant attitude? Even was struck with blindness. I mean, these guys are unrelenting, aren't they? They're struck with blindness and they're still trying to find the door to Lot's house and break in. It is Abraham's intercession that makes the difference for Lot. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered 
Abraham. He remembered the intercession of Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Verse 29. In Genesis 19, we see how Sodom has affected Lot. Lot has given up his tent. He's no longer a sojourner like Abraham. He's settling in to Sodom. He is making a claim on this city. He is a resident. He has sought a position in the city gate of Sodom. He seeks to appease the men of Sodom at the expense of his own virgin daughters. His value system is way, way off. And we also see that Lot has no authority in Sodom. Though he sought authority, he has no authority. When the men of the town hear him, they resent his interference. Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. And they said, who made you to be a judge over us? When Lot goes to his sons-in-law, they think his warning is a joke. And then we see a hesitation, a reluctancy in Lot to leave Sodom. The angels must take Lot, his wife, and his daughters by the hand and drag them out of Sodom, verse 16. Can you imagine that? He's like, well, you know, he doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to leave Sodom even though judgment is coming. It's not only that he's hesitant. Lot has come to love Sodom. Were it not for Abraham's intercession, Lot would die with Sodom. He wouldn't flee. He wouldn't leave. He has to be taken by the hand and dragged out. Then we see in verses 17 through 20 that Lot does not want to go too far from Sodom. The angels say, you need to flee to the mountains. He's like, oh, the mountains, they're so far away. Something might happen to me. Lot, you're about to be pulverized. And you're worried about a mountain lion? You're worried about something in the mountains? These are angels that are directing you. He doesn't want to go where the angels direct him. He doesn't trust the angels. He trusts, he trusts himself more than he trusts the angels. Now, he couldn't save himself, and yet he's still trusting. Can I go to Zoar, this little city? It's really close. I really like city life. He wants to choose where he will go. It seems from the text that Zoar was also intended for judgment, but it was spared because Lot wanted to go there. Lot's wife tries to return to Son 24:26. When it says she turned back, it, it's not just a lingering look, it's a return, like I forgot to turn the oven off. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Jasmine and I were in Columbia a week ago, and they were telling us about this young girl who was crossing the street when she dropped something, and she turned around to pick it up, and she got hit by a car, and she died. And of course, right after Jasmine hears this story, she's walking across the street right after me, because, you know, I ran. And she goes to run across, and her flip-flop 
falls off, and she turns around to get it. I'm like, no, you're going to die. You know? I've heard this story. And um, when she turns around, I believe that she's hit by some of the burning sulfur, and she's petrified. I've been to Pompeii, where Mount Vesuvius, when it erupted, the people were petrified. Uh, they, were, they were turned to stone by the uh, sulfur and the ashes that fell. And it's interesting because they're caught in the very thing they were doing. You know, there's, there's one that's laying down. There's um, ones that are running, and they look like statues, but they're actually petrified. The work of judgment will not begin until Lot is safely secured away from Sodom. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there, verse 22. In verses 24 through 26 of chapter 19, God thoroughly destroys Sodom. It's interesting because there's, um, I can't remember his name, but there's an archaeologist who's born again who has uh, an archaeological digger he did at Sodom. And you could go, I had friends that went for a month and they were able to um, help with this dig. I had a friend who went for a week. I have another friend who gave me a handle from a pot that dates back to this time. And the interesting is there's evidence of severe burning. It looks like Pompeii. And we're told, then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground, verse 24. God's power is exercised because of Abraham's intercession. It saves someone not deserving of preservation. Frankly, as I read about Lot, I don't like Lot. He'd be on my naughty list if I was Santa Claus. He'd get coal. It doesn't seem like the residents of Sodom did either, does it? It doesn't seem like he's a real likable guy, except for Abraham, Uncle Abraham. He likes Lot, and he seeks Lot's best welfare, even though Lot had chosen the best of the promised land for himself. In fact, Wearsby said it's easier to get Lot out of Sodom than to get Sodom out of Lot. Lot has no value for his daughters. Here's the reasons I don't like him. Lot has no values for, value for his daughters. They are uninformed about what is happening. He seems so self-centered and self-preserving. His daughters are uninformed. And so they think that the end of the world has happened. They don't seem to even have a relationship with their father. And they think that they are preserving mankind. These daughters have been so demoralized. Lot has not been thinking about his family or his daughters in his choices. And they think that incest is the right thing to do. And Lot succumbs to drunkenness. He just wants to escape. He wants to numb himself. And we read that Sodom continues through the illegitimate offspring of Lot's daughters. Moab, which means from the father. Benami, which means son of my kinsmen. Both Moab and Ammon become enemies of Israel. 
Sodom would have eventually destroyed Lot if God hadn't taken the preemptive move to destroy Sodom. Eventually, Lot would have been destroyed by Sodom itself. Intercession powerfully saves the undeserving, the compromised, the reluctant, the hesitant, the ignorant. In other words, intercession saves people just like us. Intercession saves. You know, Paul says, you know, he's talking about the undeserved, the sinners, the homosexuals, the adulterers. And then he says, such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been cleansed. The difference is God working. Intercession finally brings about the fruit of peace. In Philippians 4, 6 through 7, we read, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Supplication is another word for intercession. Let your requests be known unto God. And the peace that passes understanding will guard your heart and mind. Abraham can observe the smoke coming from Sodom. No Sodom is destroyed, but because of his intercession, he can have peace and know that Lot has escaped, that Lot is safe because he had spoken with the Lord, because he had been given God's word, because he knew God's will. He could be at peace. Intercession allows us to rest in the work, the righteousness, and the mercy of God. Sometimes we intercede for people and they die and we don't know, did they ever receive Jesus? At that point, we can rest in the fact of our intercession. We prayed, we prayed for them and God did the utmost, maybe sending angels at the very end to grab them by the hand and drag them to heaven. This is our rest. This is what gives us peace. Intercession makes all the difference to our demeanor, to our outlook, to our loved ones, to our understanding, to our prayer. Abraham interceded and Lot was saved. But remember, intercession involves preparation to meet with God. Perception of what God knows and what God is going to do. Intercession is bringing productivity to our angst and our sorrows and fears. It is not a substitute for our angst, for our sorrows, or for our fears. It's not a trade-in. It is bringing productivity to. Intercession is how we process all that is going on. And it brings us into participation with God's plan of salvation. It shows us the prevailing power of God on behalf of men. And it gives us the peace of God that passes all understanding. God wants more than simple prayer. He wants to create in each of us the practice of intercession. He wants to make us like Jesus in this world. 
He wants to bring us into his plans, to give us his perspective, to make us participants, to allow us to see his power and to know his peace. All of this happens as we prepare to meet him in intercession, as we make prayer for others a privilege, a feast with God, a conversation, the highlight of our lives and our days. Moses said to the people of Israel, what other people is there like you who has a God who cares, who has a God who sees, who has a God who answers prayer? What other people are like the people of the Lord? We have a God who knows, a God who sees, a God who will take our angst, our sorrow, our fears, and make them productive seeds for a harvest of joy. God wants to make us intercessions. Will you join the feast? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your will to make us intercessions. Oh God, may we answer the call and say yes. Lord, may we take these times of hardship, these times of, of sure judgment, and may we turn it into productivity. May our tears count for something. May our sorrows count. May our fears count for glory. Lord, use our prayers to save a nation, to save our children, to save the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.